Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger. Along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum. And uh, this week we have a, a number of topics to talk about. Uh, one or two bigger than the others. But uh, we'll start with the oldest thing, I think, just because it was we didn't get to record over the weekend. So it is Monday when we're recording. This will probably go out uh, uh, Tuesday morning, I would assume. But uh, it was the outdoor game disaster. Uh, the last time we recorded, it was uh, two Fridays ago now. And uh, we were talking about how well, I was talking anyways about how excited I was to kind of see the outdoor game and uh, Lake Tahoe. And I thought it looked amazing. And um, it did. It looked really cool. But uh, the NHL didn't uh, seem to plan that there was going to be um, sun maybe in the middle of the day. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that that ended up being a big problem. They had to delay the first game. Uh, they started the game 12 local time at Lake Tahoe, 3 Eastern. And uh, by the end of the first period, players could barely stand up on the ice because it was literally like slide. It was like cement they were skating on, basically, because their their skates were cutting through it because the sun was just dummying the ice. So uh, the first game played the first period, saw the Colorado Avalanche up one nothing over the Golden Knights at the end of the first, and then they had to delay the game until 11 p.m. Eastern, uh, 8 p.m. local start time. So literally like seven hours of delay between the first and second period to get the game done. They then pushed the second game back from a 3 p.m. Eastern start to, I think it was seven, so four local, and that game went off without a hitch. But um, bit of a disaster there. Uh, I will say, I still thought the games looked really good. Uh, I don't think um, changing it back to evening, and even at night, uh, it, it was good on them to... Uh, foresee that they had they needed lights uh, I was really worried they wouldn't have they would not have brought lights or anything like that maybe they shipped them from somewhere but they had their big stadium lights that they do for most outdoor games so that's good at least but um yeah I, I don't know where, where do you fall on this do you think it's the league's fault for not foreseeing sun in in the afternoon because I, I go back and forth so you would think I guess you would hope they have a contingency plan but also I don't really know how obvious it is like what you do to prevent that right like an outdoor game yeah i think you know the biggest thing was obviously that they wanted the uh, nbc time slot right um nbc wasn't going to bump snl for them which they have at 11 at uh yeah 11 eastern time or anything like that so they had to get the game started basically either at or before seven o'clock and i'm assuming nbc offered them the the 3 p.m eastern time slot so that's the one they wanted to take and I don't know. Like, again, like I, I, I like that they're trying something new. I'd rather them take a risk and go for it than not like just be casual. But yeah, at the same time, it's like you say, how can you foresee it? But also it's like, well, you know, if it's supposed to be sunny, yeah, I can definitely foresee it being an issue if there's like sun melting down on the ice, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like the most classic uh, outdoor rink problem in the world. Yeah, exactly. And like, I guess they were thinking it was going to be overcast for the second day. And, and when they realized it wasn't be, that's why they, they uh, moved it back. But um, still like, I, I don't know. Like I, I just, uh, it was one of those things where it's like, of course this happens to the NHL. And like, um, I, I don't know. I, I just think that uh, it, it's tough because I think you should have seen it foreseen it coming, but also I don't want to, you know, like we, we criticize the league quite often about how they, they never want to take a risk. They don't ever step out of their comfort zone. They don't do anything like that. And then, you know, the one time they do and it kind of fails on them, I, I don't think we can absolutely just dunk on them either, you know? Yeah, exactly. It was worth a shot. And it's not like it was a disaster. Like, I guess the game still went over fine. They just had to delay it, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say the first one is a little bit more of a, like having to delay your first and second periods by seven hours in between is uh, not exactly ideal. But the second game, like the Sunday night game went over completely fine. For what it's worth, the Saturday one got completed and Colorado won in a good game anyway. So, you know, it's weird. It's one of those things where, yeah, you look back on it, it's definitely not ideal, but it's not it's not the end of the world for sure. Um but, you know, I, I thought the it, it looked great. I, I get that they it sounds like they're not going to um, want to do that again. They would much rather still stay with the 70,000 tickets being sold, which is understandable. But I, I really do wish that they would at least think about trying these these outdoor games where it's like you can either get like a couple thousand or no one at the rink. But it doesn't sound like, you know, put in a post-pandemic era, that's what they're going to want to do. But it's a shame because I really thought that uh, it looked good and the ratings were through the roof. I don't know if they were in Canada, but in America, it was the mo- the Saturday one, or sorry, I believe the Sunday one they said was the most viewed game on NBC ever during a weekend or something like that, like a regular season game. And uh, the Saturday one was averaging like well over a million viewers as well for the first period, which uh, is like really, really good numbers for the NHL on NBC. Yeah. Jesus. I had no idea it did that well. Yeah. I, I, I would say it was Greg Wyshynski was reporting. on. I think he said on puck soup as well, but like, it was like both games were like, could be, were seen as really good success for, t- for TV ratings anyways. And um, you know, I, I don't think that's shocking, you know, people such as myself, like I don't, care for most of the outdoor games anymore but such as I wanted to tune in because I wanted to see you know what it looked like and I thought it looked great and you know it helped that it was uh, two good teams on the first day and two good teams on the second day although that game was a bit more of a blowout Boston kind of ran Philly over but um, yeah I, I thought overall it was uh, really well done and it was just um, I, I go back and forth on whose fault it might be or if you know it's just unlucky but I, I don't want to criticize the NHL too much but I definitely think they should take some of the blame for you know not for seeing sun during the day yeah it's not like this was like the Houston once in a 30 year kind of storm this is this is a pretty mundane thing to happen during the middle of the day yeah exactly yeah it's not like yeah where you get a bunch of snow in Dallas it's like it, it's notoriously sunny in Lake Tahoe from what I understand too not like not like it was like zero degrees or two degrees uh Celsius out there but you know it's just one of those things where it's like yeah you probably should have had a, a plan for that but um either way you know I, again like I, I'm glad to see them kind of go out of their comfort zone go somewhere where they definitely wouldn't have normally and I would be really interested to see what you know, something like that could look like in the future, but I, I just don't think it'll happen. You know, even if you could sell, say, a thousand tickets to spectators and charge the price up, you're just you're not going to beat the gate revenue of seventy thousand people all paying well over fifty bucks a ticket plus parking plus food and all that stuff, right? So, yeah, it's hard to beat. Um, the next biggest thing in news, well, honestly, the biggest thing in news, I think, is uh, the Montreal Canadiens. They they fired a coach, and we weren't really sure if we were going to see any coach firings this year just because, you know, like quarantine, if you want to bring in a totally new guy, and just, you know, with the pandemic, obviously a lot of the owners are losing money, so who who knows if they would want to, um, um, you know, spend money on a buying out a coach, but uh, the Montreal Canadiens did it. Uh, they fired Claude Julien after they lose Two back-to-back games against the Ottawa Senators, the second of which uh, a goal got disallowed. Where I, I don't, I honest to God, don't know how it got disallowed. Ottawa had a horseshoe up their ass for that one, but um, you know they and Ottawa ends up winning that game in overtime, or sorry, in a shootout. And honestly, they said like if that game would have been won, Julian probably would have had a job, which is 
kind of wild. So who knows how much longer he actually would have had a job for if that was the case. But um, yeah, uh, Claude Julian's out as the head coach. They they promote assistant head coach Dom Ducharme. They also fired Kirk uh, Mueller, I believe it was the assistant head coach, who was uh, in charge of the power play and brought up Alex Burrows, who was a uh, coach with their AHL squad. So um, uh, thoughts on this move just in general. So, yeah, like you kind of mentioned this. If they were going to fire, not fire him if they had just won that game, like why are you even employing the guy then? Yeah, exactly. Like it's one of those things where – and it happens often in hockey too where it's like um, – you know, it's like, oh, yeah, if he would have won a game, we would have given him some more time, see what he can do. It's like, well, if you were so dead set that he is not the guy after he gets one point instead of two, how is getting that second point off a fluke goal any different than if he got the one point from a goal that got disallowed and you couldn't believe it? You know what I mean? Yeah, like I always find those things ridiculous. Like either – like it screams there's a huge problem in your process because either you have a coach that you really, really, really do not believe in or you do believe in them and you're firing them just because of like a short-term variance, both of which are bad. I'm not sure which is worse. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to Julian, I, I think, you know, we're, let's discuss this as well. Um, I go back and forth because I, I do think he's a good coach. Um, he obviously drives results at five on five in terms of, you know, their expected goals and their Corsi four number. But um, you know, even going back to Boston at the end of Boston, where it was like uh uh, finishing is a problem. And, you know, some of that is not on the coach. Obviously he can only do as much as he can with the roster around him. But uh, I think there is something to be said as well, that like when you, you know, it's been so many years in a row where you literally always outperform your, you underperform your expected goals and stuff like that, even going back to Boston. And w- when Bruce Cassidy took over in Boston, it almost got immediately better. You know, he got fired in 2015, 2016, they made the playoffs, lost to Ottawa and 2017, they're a cup contender again. You know what I mean? So like, um, I, I do think there's something to be said about it. But that being said, like with this roster, I really don't know what more the Montreal Canadiens expect. Like, I, I just, I, I think they probably got their, they got way too much hype, obviously from that bubble run. And then also the first nine games that they started the season with five of which they just beat up on a very, obviously not good Vancouver team. Right. So like, I, I don't know what you want to do there. Yeah, exactly. And I, I take a little bit of issue with the, so like there is a chance that Claude Julian system chronically causes teams to underperform their Corsi and expected goals for percentage. But a lot of people were saying, well, this happened in Boston too, and they got way better just as he left, which kind of conveniently leaves out that some guy named David Pasternak broke onto the scene in Boston the moment he left and was a consistent 30 goal scorer and adding like one of the guys who's been like a top five shooter in the league over the past three or four seasons is a pretty good way to remedy a team chronically underperforming its XG. That has yeah, absolutely. To do with Julian. Absolutely. It does say something that, you know, they got a, one of the most elite shooters that they've seen in there. And, you know, a guy who has been a top forward since he's broken into the league basically. And, you know, is one of the best players in the league at the time being, um, I, I definitely do think that's fair. And, um, you know, again, like with this team, I just, I don't, I don't really know sometimes what you expect out of them. Like we said, coming into the year, it's like, yeah, this is a team that's not bad by any means, but also like they don't really have any stars. So there's going to be times like now where the scoring dries up and they've gotten absolutely nothing out of their centermen, which we said was going to be the key to, uh, you know, if they wanted any kind of success. Yeah, exactly. Like if, 
if you went into this year with realistic expectations, which is, hey, we came like 24th in the league last year. I don't think you made the playoffs the year before that. Like, we probably shouldn't expect to be this juggernaut. Like, this is more or less what was expected. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, like, again, like, um, you know, I think a lot of that has to go on the GM. And, but you could probably put some of that on the coach, too, because it's not like uh, Claude Julian's coaching record lately has been through the roof. I mean, since 2014-15, he has missed the playoffs with Boston, missed the playoffs with Boston, was on pace to miss the playoffs with Boston, took over Montreal halfway through the year, went 16-7, and seven, lost in round one, missed the playoffs with Montreal, missed the playoffs with Montreal, should have missed the playoffs with Montreal, but technically lost in the first round because they finished 24th and still worked their way in the playoffs. Yeah, like he doesn't have this absolutely amazing record. And it kind of brings up a philosophical question of like, um, how much of the head coach do you think is on even strength versus uh, special teams? Like how much onus is on them? Because even though they've been underperforming their numbers, like they have really, really good, just straight up goal numbers at five on five and even strength, Julian, it's the special teams that kill them. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why, um, and you look at, especially like this Montreal special team, special team too, is like, it's just not, I mean, me and you can tell you it's not effective to just give the puck to Shea Weber and let him blast point shots away. I know that they like to, because he's got a massive shot, but you know, it's just the most ineffective shot in the league or like, you know, placement of shot in the league. Right. And the fact that that is mainly what the Montreal power play consists of, it's like, okay, that's not great. And again, like, that's why I think firing the the special teams coach makes sense too. But, you know, again, like some of that's got to be on Julian, I think, where it's like, all right, we need to change something up here because this is clearly not working. But, um, you know, I, again, I'm interested to see how much they change up because if I'm Alex Burrow, like if, I, I don't know, like I don't want to put words in Burrow's mouth, but, you know, w- would I be shocked if they go back to the system where it's just Shea Weber shooting as much as he can? No, I really wouldn't be all that surprised. So, you know, if they do that, I think they're going to see struggle, continued struggles on the panel, uh, power play. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's one of those things where, like, it seems way too obvious to move away from it. But the fact that it hasn't happened yet suggests there's a lot of people in that organization that really like doing it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's kind of one of those things where um, – with the, the, the point shot, there's Jesus cat in the background uh, with, with the point shot. It's kind of one of those things where he's, he scored so many goals just through his career doing that because that's how teams have fed him the power play. But we didn't have data back in the day to suggest, Hey, this is like a really inefficient shot of going in, you know, and, and people still cite that, you know, maybe he gets 15 goals on the power play or whatever a year, but it's like, well, yeah, if, if you feed him hundreds and hundreds of shots and attempts to do that, he's going to get some goals. It just means that, you know, and, and that's a, that's a good thing. But when you look at the efficiency, it's not as good because, you know, instead of him blasting the puck away, if he passes most of those shots off to his winger, who then dishes it to someone else, you have the goalie going left to right. And maybe you score on say 7% of the shots instead of like 2% of the shots or whatever actually go in, you know? Yeah. Like you would think so. I don't know if they just have no faith in the talent of their forwards. But like they should, like we've seen at five on five that they're, you know, especially like that top line of Gallagher, Juno uh, and um, Tatar that like, that's a good forward line that can, you know, like they don't have a ton of shooting talent, but they outwork the opponent at five on five so much that they outscore them. It's like, why would that be any different on the power play? 
Yeah, it's kind of weird because like they win on volume from their forwards and their defensemen at five on five. It's like you could presumably do something like that with a little bit more faith in your forwards on the power play too, where maybe you still underperform your XG because the shooting talent just isn't there, but not by nearly as much as when you're just bombing point shots all day. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of the big thing to me is, um, you know, you look at it and you say, okay, well, um, you know, they have guys like Josh Anderson who we're seeing can shoot the puck again. You know, Jonathan Druin's got some skill. Obviously Gallagher's one of the biggest pests in the net front and, and having a guy like Weber on the blue line is not a bad thing at all because, you know, he, you can take shots with him. I'm not saying never shoot with Shea Weber, but the whole just feed him the puck over and over and over again and watch him stuff it into either miss the net or stuff it in the goalie. It's just like, it's not that effective a shot. You know, I think it was, Oh, who was it? it was one of the Buffalo Sabres writers who who did research and found that five on five point shots go through are about two percent in effectiveness. So about two percent of the, the shots on net score. Maybe it was just below that. It was literally said it, it has the less likelihood of going in on your own net or on the other team's net than it does getting blocked and going back for a breakaway on your own net in the, the research that he found. And, um, you know, so like that just kind of speaks to, and obviously it's a little less than that on, on the power play, but it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, you can't just keep stuffing it to the same guy over and over again. And I'm really interested to see if they try and change it because, um, you know, if nothing changes, I think it's fair to say it's not a Claude Julian issue. It's an organizational issue. Um, but I, I don't know. Like they, Since Ducharme took over, you know, sometimes you see a coaching bump. Uh, that's not really the case here. They are 0-2, including losing and blowing like a two-goal lead to the Jets in the third period a couple nights ago. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're in some trouble here. Like it's the only thing going for them this year right now, I think, is the fact that they are in the North Division. You know, like if they were in the Atlantic, I would say their their season is getting dangerously close to over already probably by now. Oh, I would think so. But they're right in it, and it's still kind of their spot to lose because they're in such a terrible division. Yeah, I mean, Ottawa's not doing anything. Vancouver sucks. Like, Vancouver is uh, three points ahead of Ottawa with a game or with one more game played. Like, if Ottawa wins their next game, Ottawa's a singular point back from Vancouver, and that speaks to how bad Vancouver's been because Ottawa's not expected to do anything and started the year 1-8-1. and one. Uh, the Flames are just 500. They're 10, 10, and two. Um, and, you know, Montreal's two two games in hand on the Flames and they're they're a point ahead. So they can still get back in this and win a game or two. And if they win a game or two and the Jets lose their next two games, suddenly they're tied with the Jets and a, a point behind the Oilers as well. So it's not like they're out of it by any means. But like, again, like if this was the Atlantic and you had Boston, Tampa, Toronto all playing well, well, suddenly you're fourth, but now Florida's playing well as well. It's like, oh, shoot, well, now we're fifth. And it's like, there's still other teams you kind of have to, I mean, maybe not Ottawa, Detroit and Buffalo would be in that division, I guess as well, but still it's like there, there would be at least four legitimately good teams and you'd be a lot more screwed where right now it's like the flames are just kicking dust. The oil or the Canucks and senators are sinking and the Oilers have been red hot lately, eight and two, and the jets have been red hot lately, seven and three, and they're still not that far ahead of the Habs. So, um, you know, there's, they're still in this for sure. It's just, they need to turn this around and that's the, this division is definitely the one thing I think that you can kind of look at with some hope and say, okay, we're not out of this for sure. Yeah, exactly. And what I just find funny is like what I always assume firing the coach means like massive disappointment, but like what did most reasonable people say about the Canadian division before the year? It's like, Oh, the Leafs are pretty clearly better than everyone else. And then there's sort of that mushy middle of teams and where are the Canadians? They're just, right in the mushy middle yeah exactly i mean like and i think like 
you know, we, we switched teams. We had Oilers and Flames as two and three there. Um, and then we thought the Canadians and Jets and Canucks were going to be kind of close. And again, you, you could switch that pretty easily right now where uh, we thought it was the Flames, but it ends up being the Jets. And then we thought that the Canadians would make the playoffs, but not by a ton over the Jets or Canucks. And it looks like they're going to make the, like, if it was right now, they'd be making the playoffs, but not by a ton over the Flames and not by, you know, and may, by a bit more over the Canucks than I think I would have originally assumed. But yeah, it's not like they are just absolutely disappointing, but it's just because of their last 10 or whatever, like they're two, five and three in their last 10. And they were, I think roughly the same with Julian as well. And, um, you know, two of those losses in a row came to the Ottawa Senators, which is just it's breaking teams right now. Anytime a team loses to Ottawa, their fan base just starts to melt down. Yeah. It's kind of hilarious. Cause like, uh, yeah, I, I guess everybody for some reason expected every game against Ottawa was going to be a win this year. But like teams really are melting down when they lose to Ottawa for some reason I, this year. I think it's compounded just because of how bad they started. Like the one eight one start and those nine losses in a row were all just so, so bad. Like it was just it wasn't they were just losing. They were getting absolutely dummy night in, night out by the Western teams. And then it was like, okay, this is what we should expect then. It's like, well, no, in in reality, that's never what you should have expected. Yes, Ottawa is not a great team, but in reality, the start of the year was everything going poorly for them and just, you know, they couldn't have a break going their way. So um, it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, of course, like um, they weren't that clearly they weren't that bad. And there's still some nights where they are that bad, but they also have some nights where, you know, they play the Canadians hard back-to-back nights, get a little bit of luck and they win two games. And then they absolutely dominate the flames one night and then get dominated. It's like, that's what you should expect. You should expect them to probably play most teams hard. If you don't bring your a game, you know, the flames are on a back-to-back after playing Toronto, you're probably going to get dominated by Ottawa. But if you do, if you're rested and you do bring your a game, you're probably going to control the game, the, the play pretty well, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because they're like a they're like a forty eight percent possession and uh, XG team, which is it's bad enough, but like it's not, and they don't really have much shooting talent. But it's not like you can just completely write them off and be like they're never going to win if we're not on our game. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's it's like any poor team, even in the worst teams in the NHL most years, other than like Detroit last year, basically. Um, and even Detroit was on pace for twenty wins through a season. You know, like. Um, but, you know, any bad team, it's like you can't just completely have an off night because there's so much talent in the NHL that even the absolutely obviously worst teams have enough talent that on any given night they can beat you if you if you just show up and you don't try. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's kind of what happened. But it was kind of funny, you know, obviously the Sens Twitter was going nuts. Uh, uh, the fact that uh, Julian got fired kind of because they lost to the Sens and it really felt like it was because they lost back-to-back games to Ottawa specifically, not just – like if they would have if they would have lost to Toronto twice in overtime, I think Julian probably has a job after those games, you know? Yeah, I would think so. But and, and again, like I think that kind of speaks to what we, we were talking about at the beginning, where it's like if you were gonna fire him if you lost, but you got one extra point, so you didn't fire him, it's like you should probably still be firing him anyways, or there there's a flawed process here. But um regardless, uh, it, it happened and it'll be interesting to see where they go. Yeah, Ducharme's gonna be their coach for the rest of the year, but um, you know, again, they're 0-2 with him right now. So I, I don't know, like if I, I would have to think I keep, I mean, I keep always thinking this and he keeps getting more chances, but this has to be uh, Bergevin's last bullet in the chamber, right? You would think so. He must have a great relationship with like ownership and like the media and stuff, because you just hear nothing but like, like there aren't really 
high up. Like, I don't really hear people calling for Bergevin's head, but like, no, it's the exact opposite. They have two good weeks and they were praising him as GM of the year. Yeah. And like, if any other, like, if Kyle Dubas had this track record after like seven years, people would be melting down or whatever Bergevin's had. But like, yeah, people are like, oh, great. GM of the year. People decided Joel Edmondson was a great signing because Mark Bergevin did it. Like, it's it's really weird to me because it's such a high energy market and yet they just love them for whatever reason. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's crazy that like um, through all this time of uh, you know not being all that good for whatever and in one of the most yeah aggressive markets where they will turn on a coach after you lose three games. It's like Mark Bergevin is still as a GM just had taken no like no. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I'm blanking on the, the word. Like, like just the no watch. criticism. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like he'll take like a little bit of criticism, but then it's largely because he'll make a move and it'll work out, but then he'll make two moves that don't work out and he'll make one more that does work out. You know what I mean? Like, it just it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, as like one of those things where it's like, no, he's clearly a good GM. It's like, well, he definitely does some things that are good, but. At the same time, he does enough that like he's taking he's he's a guy who's aggressive and takes a ton of swings, but like is that a great thing? I I don't know. Like Yeah, and like he signed one of the worst contracts in the entire league and like stuff like that. Like there there are enough blemishes there that there should be legitimate criticisms of him. Yeah, absolutely. And like I'm I'm just going through, I'm trying to see when he was even hired because i know it was it was a little while ago now like it was right um, after the lockout if i remember correctly it's like 2013 that sounds right um i'm just going through mark bergevin may may 2nd 2012 to present so you know and like i'm just on his cap friendly page and um you know, on May 2nd, 2012, he was promoted as general manager and executive vice president of the Habs. Uh, he was a, a assistant GM with the, the Hawks for uh, from 2011 to 2012 and a director of player personnel from 09 to 11. So he'd been with the Hawks pretty much since 08. Um, and then, you know, like it just, like, yeah, you, you go down his list of moves as a GM and it's like, uh, like, I guess, you know, like his signings carry price. Well, that's not great. Uh, PK Subban. Um, you know, it was more than it probably had to be because he did that one, the, the bridge deal. And then Subban said, okay, you're paying me now. Um, you know, and then you go and look at some of his draft or his trades and stuff like that. Like, it's just, there's a lot of, uh, kind of whatever, but there's also a lot of big swings in there where it's like some of them work out and some of them absolutely don't. But, um, you know, I, I think there is something to be said about the fact that since what 2015, I don't think they've won around in the playoffs. Cause I don't count that you know, little play in round to get them to the first round. Like I don't count the three Oh five. And so I don't think they've won since 2015. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't look like they're a huge threat to do so anytime soon either. No, I mean like if I could see them winning around in this, especially if they get to third, if they're playing Toronto, I think Toronto should be heavily favored, but if they get to like third in this division and get to play Edmonton, I could see them being, you know, I could see them winning around or whatever, but like, I just, I don't think they're the favorites to come out of this division. And I don't think it's particularly close either. Like I would have them third or fourth probably still. And like, I don't know, I would put them at what? I would say a 10 or 15% chance to make the conference finals right now. And that, again, we just talked about how poor their division is and that, that kind of leads into it. 
Yeah, exactly. Or like if they can get the Jets in the playoffs, they could probably be favored in a series, but that's like their best case scenario. Yeah, I would agree. And then it's like, yeah, okay, you beat the Jets and you might still have the Toronto Maple Leafs sitting there for you. And I think Toronto is uh, money puck had them at 10% to win the cup the other night and money puck. Obviously that's not, you can't just go off of that, but that again, speaks how highly to what the models think of that division where it's like, yeah, they think it's Toronto. They have a pretty easy path to the conference finals. So at that point, it doesn't matter. You play in the conference finals. If you only have to play one hard team versus like, like Colorado, one of Colorado Vegas or St. Louis is going to have to play both of those other teams, you know, like they're like, if you're Colorado, it might be Colorado, St. Louis round one, and then they got to play Vegas round two. So it's like you had to play Vegas, St. Louis, and say Boston on your way to the Stanley Cup finals, whereas Toronto might be able to play Montreal, Edmonton, and then whoever they face, you know, in the in the conference finals. Yeah, exactly. There's this weird thing that might be able to happen this year because of how extreme the divisions are, where like Toronto could be the cup favorites despite in a model despite them being like the sixth best team in the league per the same model. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people always get confused by that, but it happens some other years too. You know, like it's the same reason why the teams like uh, Toronto, Boston and Tampa always have lower uh, rates than like a Pittsburgh that maybe models would like. It's because, well, you know, Boston is going to have to play Toronto and Tampa. Tampa is going to have to play at least one of Boston or Toronto. And, um, you know, the Pittsburgh kind of not that they get a free pass, but if Pittsburgh is the Pittsburgh we knew from two years ago, it's like they don't have to play any of those three teams. They play Washington, who, you know, is a good but not great team, and Philly, who's a good not but not great team or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I've seen a couple of people talking about how they should realign the divisions because of how good the Leafs division has been this year. But, like, I don't know why people get mad at the NHL for this when we're, like, four years away removed from it being the Pittsburgh and Washington show that everybody complained about. Like you just can't make long-term adjustments based on these things. Shit just happens in the short run sometimes. Yeah. It's almost as if it just, it randomly swings into what teams are good and what teams aren't good, you know? And when a whole division is pretty bad for a while, it turns out that that division will eventually be pretty good. Well, that the division that was really good for a while, those teams start to, you know, fall off and it's just, it's just going to happen like that. And it's not really, there's nothing you can do to really change it. You just kind of live with it. Yeah, exactly. It's part of the luck factor in the NHL. It's just your timing. Like, yeah, oh, and you're then, the San Jose Sharks. You're great. Well, too bad. You're great at the exact same time as the Chicago Blackhawks and LA Kings. So you never win a cup. Sucks yeah, suck. I mean, I think if you wanted to, you could change the playoff format. So it's the division winners. And then maybe you put take the top two from each division and you have six wild or four wild cards instead of just two or whatever. Or you could even do six wild cards and just the division winners. Like if you wanted to do that, I would be fine with it. But yeah, changing the divisions, you just there's no point in doing that, you know? Yeah, so it'll just be some other division that gets stacked in like three years, and then you have the same problem, and you're constantly chasing something. Yeah, exactly. So um, a couple other things here. Um, uh, let's start with a, a smaller one. We'll stay in the same the North Division here. Philip Schlappick and the Ottawa Senators uh, mutually uh, terminated his contract. Uh, he was put on waivers this week, and everyone's kind of confused. I was like, isn't he in the AHL already? And then it was, yeah, this is a termination, and uh, – more confusion came, but it sounds like basically he just wanted to go back to Europe. He wasn't getting a chance in the NHL. He was he was going to be playing in the AHL again, and if he wasn't getting a chance with Ottawa, a good chance he wasn't getting a chance anywhere. Um, so, you know, I would assume he probably makes more money in Europe than the 70K or whatever he makes in the AHL, and he's also closer to home. Um, from his perspective, I totally understand this. You know, I don't blame him. 
I would want to go back to. It's been now pretty much four years in Belleville, or this would be his fourth year in Belleville, and he's played a total of 57 NHL games, in which he, I thought he looked pretty good. I thought it was pretty obvious that he's a bottom six forward who is defensively responsible, but Ottawa decided they would rather give uh, Matthew Pekka, uh, Michael Haley, uh, Cedric Paquette, Austin Watson. He, they'd rather give that kind of player a chance over Schlappick, and so the teams de- agreed to mutually part ways. Yeah, you. I have so many questions about this because, like, he seems like the exact kind of player that Ottawa should love to have in the depth role. Like, everybody who watches him and his numbers both suggest he's just this, you know, defensively responsible, just solid depth forward. He's young enough. Like, why doesn't Ottawa want that? I, I couldn't tell you. Like, it's frustrating because he is what people – or he is what teams seem to think Cedric Paquette is. Like, he is actually that player where it's like he is good in his own end and he'll chip a goal or two in here or there. He's got 11 points in 57 games. He's not lighting the league up or anything like that. But even that is, you know, roughly a 20-point average over a full season. And, and again, this is spread out over, like, four years. I, I do think he could be a 15-point player who just doesn't let much up when he's on the ice. And I think there's – something to be effective about that. You know, like I I don't, it's not the end of the world losing him or anything like that. It's just one of those things where you kind of bang your head against the wall because he's a 23 year old who clearly deserves a shot. He had 22 points in 37 AHL games last year and looked good doing that. And, and, you know, instead of that, they're like, no, let's give Michael Haley a shot for whatever reason. So he can play four minutes a night on our fourth line. Yeah, exactly. Cause like he's already got, the certainty that he can do the Haley Paquette thing, or maybe not certainty, but you're pretty sure at this point, his numbers suggested everybody who watches him say it. So I'm just going to assume it's true that he has what it takes to be that defensively responsible third line, fourth line depth piece. And then there's like still a non-zero chance. He finds a smidge of offensive upside, in which case he's actually somewhat valuable. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, the most frustrating thing to me is it's not like this team's trying to be good. So this is the year you should be experimenting with this. And it's not like he's a 21 year old where you can't play him on the fourth line. It's like, no, you're expecting him to be a bottom six forward. So let him show what he can do in the bottom six. And you know, if he's just a guy who doesn't score much, but they don't let up much anymore when he's on the ice, that's great. That's all you should want. Like, like I, I just, I, I can't wrap my head around why they didn't bother. They just decided, no, we're good. We don't want to see anything from this guy. Like it just, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense to me. He seems like the, the perfect kind of guy. You just give a shot to. Seems competent enough in his role. If he doesn't get any better, he still does one thing well enough. You can justify keeping him around. Yeah, and I mean, like, if if, if he wasn't getting a shot because it was Alex Formanton and Logan Brown and guys like that who took his role from him, I would totally understand that, right? It's like, yeah, those guys are more important in the organization. I'd rather see it. But again, it's Michael freaking Haley. The dude can't play. They literally played him three and a half minutes the other night because they couldn't trust him at five on five. And, you know, so it's like, it's him or like Matthew Pekka, who Pekka's looked fine, but I'd rather see what Schlappick has, you know, and Cedric Paquette, who I didn't care to see on the team at all. It's, it's just, it's names like that. It's like, well, why are you not... Like, why are you giving those guys a shot? You know, if there's someone better to play, sure, but it's not better players that you're playing. Yeah, exactly. Like, it makes no sense. Now, I guess it does make sense for him. He could probably make more money, play close to home. I can't imagine most Czech Republic kids grow up dreaming of playing at Binghamton. So, yeah, I don't blame him at all. If if your options are going to be AHL and like a $70,000 uh, paycheck, I would much rather go back to the Czech Republic, play at home. 
I, th- I think COVID's probably wor- less bad over there um, than it is here. Um, and you probably make, uh, I don't know, probably at least a couple hundred grand, I would assume, a year. So, um, you know, good for him at least. I, I assume he's going back to the Czech Republic. But, uh, yeah, a bit of a head-scratcher, in my opinion, from Ottawa's perspective. Um, other really big no- news from this week are Temi Panarin took a step away from the New York Rangers, uh, leave of absence, and comes because he, uh, the Russian stars, quote, shaken and concerned fo- following quote, unfounded allegations made against him, according to a team statement posted on Twitter. Um, the statement report, uh, it, it was a report originally that came out of a newspaper tabloid in Russia, and it was a former coach of a, a Panarin's uh, back in 2011. Uh, it claimed that Panarin assaulted a woman in a Latvian bar back in 2011. Uh, his coach is claiming it now. Um, complicated story that we don't really have the details to, so we're not going to get too far into, but, you know, Artemi Panarin has been unequivocally, unequivocally denies any of the allegations, all the allegations uh, in the story, the Rangers said, and the, the league says they're working with them, both of them. Um, pretty sure it is well known that uh, the coach that made the allegations is a supporter of Putin and one of Putin's friends. And uh, Panarin is very anti-Putin. He came out even just the other day about a social media post again for leader Alexei, uh, now, 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 Lenny, I believe is his name, uh, Putin's opposition, basically. So a uh, bit of a messy situation there, obviously. Um, again, I don't think we need to get way into it or anything like that. It's not a great, it's obviously not a great look. You know, you don't want to jump to conclusions either way. You can't just automatically say he's not guilty, but you know, if he's not guilty, that's a brutal lie to make up for about someone as well. Right. Like there's no good outcome here in terms of, you know, this situation happening. Yeah, it sucks because, like, like if this is true, it needs to be taken incredibly seriously. But, like, I also, like, the the person alleging it, or obviously we know where it's coming from, is very capable of this not being true. So, and I, I don't really know how to know what side to fall on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think I would probably... Uh, side with the fact that you know because we've seen it so many from times from Putin's camp where it's like yeah this probably isn't true but again like you can't just to me you can't just absolutely say no this is not true at all because if it is true and he did actually assault a woman you can't defend that you know yeah exactly like the word probably does a lot of work there and like you need to when it comes to like assaulting women that's so unforgivable that like you need to be a hundred percent sure. And obviously the league's going to work to be a hundred percent sure one way or the other. And yeah, that exactly. would be a lot easier to draw, draw conclusions. Cause I really don't know the ins and outs of Russian politics. Yeah. I mean, I don't either by the sounds of it, everyone is just kind of bad. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, we don't need to get into it too in depth. I just want to bring it up, but it's definitely one of those situations where I did want to say, you know, like, Obviously for us, especially like we want to make sure that, you know, we get all the details before you make anything because um, it it wouldn't shock me at all. Again, as I said, if it comes out that he did nothing, none of this and, you know, he was rightfully being defended. But at the same time, I don't think we should just automatically say, no, there's no way he could have done this because, you know, we've seen people do worse in the past. Right. So it's it's one of those things where, you know, just want to wait for details. Uh, I would, I would like to hope that it didn't happen. I think the better of the two outcomes is clearly that he didn't assault someone and it's someone we know is not a good person doing something that is not good rather than someone we think is a good person. And we, you know, people idolize doing something bad, you know, obviously it being a false statement would be better of the two, but it's not like either of these situations are just awesome or anything like that. Yeah. Not both are bad. Cause if like if the Russian government is making up lies about 
someone whose family still presumably lives in Russia. Like that's, you'd got to feel super unsafe for that, for them there too. Like there's no winning here. Yeah, exactly. So, um, bit of a lighter note, uh, Sidney Crosby played his 1000th game this year, uh, this week. Uh, it's kind of crazy that he is only at a thousand. It's kind of, uh, highlights the, the injury troubles that he's had and, and how sad it's been. Um, you know, just for over the years of how many games he's had to miss due to injury, like for comparison, him and Ovechkin came in the league at the same time. Ovechkin is on game 1170 already. So, um, you know, and it's not like, you know, Ovechkin doesn't get hurt very often, but he's missed a handful of games here and there as well. So, but definitely nowhere, like he's played over 65 games every single season in his career. And the only ones he hasn't has been the lockout shortened season and last season when he played 68 and I'm assuming he probably missed a game or two, but like there was only 70 games that got played anyways. Right. So. Yeah. I think he missed a couple, but yeah, it's, it's kind of wild that I feel old with Sid playing a thousand games. Yeah. Like, I mean, and you know, imagine how someone feels when they were like 20 coming when he was coming into the league but uh yeah like 12 1200 points 1280 points in in a thousand games he's at a thousand four now but um it is kind of just like insane to think about because you know i mean people still call him sid the kid when in reality he's sid the 33 year old man like he's not a kid anymore which is you know even just weird to think about but uh it's also kind of impressive just you know how how well he's managed to stay on like he had a 120 point season back in 06 and 07, uh, then 103, 109 in 08, 09, 09, 10. Then his injury seasons really caught up to him for a couple of years. And then 13, 14, and under 100 point season, bunch of 80 point seasons in a row. And then 18, 19, he goes, No, I'm just going to pop off another 100 point season. Um, so, you know, it's pretty impressive the fact that he had his first 100 point season in 05, 06, and his last one was in 18, 19, over a decade later, you know, like. 13 seasons later, and he's still going strong, you know, 47 and 41 last year, and he's had 18 points in 20 games this year. Uh, he's still a very, very great player. And, you know, we've talked about him a lot because Pittsburgh has been in the news a lot, but I'm really curious to just see how many more years he he really keeps playing, you know, like at this, at, at a level where it's like he's very clearly a first-line center. Yeah, because his point totals have kind of fallen off this year, but like he's still very clearly one of the best players in the entire league. And that makes me very happy because it's going to be sad when the day finally comes that Sid is not. Yeah. And I mean, like we're already, I think, starting the point where it's like, yeah, the torch has clearly been passed where I don't even think he's a top three centerman. There's probably an argument. He's not a top five centerman after this league this year, you know, like he's probably right around there still, but you know, if someone had him like eighth or ninth or something like that, it's not like that would just be a jaw dropping take. I don't think. No, exactly. Like it seems pretty clear that, McKinnon, McDavid, and now Matthews have caught him. And now it's, yeah. it's only a matter of time before other people start doing it too, but it's going to be really sad when they do. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the dry sidles and even Braden points of the world are, you know, on their way as well. Barkov is having an amazing season. Um, you know, he is just like, I, I showed you his shot graph. I think the other night, it's just all red in the offensive zone and all blue in the defensive zone. It's insane. It's like peak Datsuk esque season, you know? But. Yeah, which is really out of nowhere for Barkov. Like, he's all of a sudden become what everybody thought he has been for the past few years. Yeah, exactly. It'd be kind of hilarious after the whole, we spent three or four years calling Barkov underrated when he probably wasn't. And then right as it's starting, it feels like it is starting to switch to people realizing how good Huberto is. It goes back to, no, actually, Barkov's probably the underrated one again now. But, uh, 
yeah, I don't know. Back to like, but with Crosby, it, it, it's it's good to see him, you know, find a second bill of health kind of here. Um, you know, he still sh- struggles with injuries. So, like he only played 41 games last year, but it's not usually concussion related, which is good to see. Um, and, you know, you hope he can just stay healthy for another three or four years and continue playing at a pretty high pace somewhere. Yeah, it's good the concussion concerns are behind them. I forget what the injury was last year, actually, but like it is just a fact that injuries are going to happen with age. So it's a good thing that it's not brain injuries for like his future beyond hockey. Yeah, I don't think it was a concussion last year. I thought it was a lower body injury for some reason, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, that being said, I I just, you know, I'm happy to see and, you know, hopefully he can keep playing a bunch of games because it's kind of crazy to think that he's already played a thousand games and only a thousand games at the same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, because, like, he's two full seasons behind Ovi, who's been robbed of, like, a season's worth of play at least. Yeah, like two lockouts, right? Or, you know, a lockout. Sorry, I guess a lockout. Ovi would have been another lockout as well. And then um, uh, just this season, you know, the 56-game shortened season this year and a couple games last year. So he's probably been robbed of a season in a bit as well. And, you know, he's still – Crosby's still that far behind uh, Ovechkin. Yeah, like there are realities where Sid has like 280 more games played than he does right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, last thing I wanted to bring up with the Buff was the Buffalo Sabres. We touched about how bad they are last week, um, you know, and just how they've been kind of unlucky. But Jeff Skinner's been a healthy scratch like three games in a row now. Uh, there's a lot of trade rumors with Jack Eichel floating around. Uh, you, you do have to think if it gets to the end of this year and they are still like dead last in the league, he goes, okay, how much more of this can I take? But uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just want to bring it up because it also seems insane to me that teams are more dedicated to Ralph Kruger, their coach, who seems like a fine coach, but also has achieved nothing than they are to a guy who they are paying $9 million a year to on a mega contract that just started. Yeah, that's, it's the weird, like the NHL's priorities are the weirdest thing in the world to me. Like they just seem to make absolutely no sense at times. Like yeah, I've like- like sure, Ralph yeah. Kruger might be great, but like that Skinner contract, like you need that to work. Well, and it's or like at least I, not suck. I get sitting him for a game or whatever and giving him the message, say, hey, but like it's not like he's even playing all that bad. He's at a 56 expected goals percentage this year, 50% Corsi four. The difference is they've been outscored three to six while he's on the ice at five on five. You know, same same story with Taylor Hall and Jack Eichel. Like I heard, I think it was the O Dog on on TSN and I know he's not exactly the best uh, metric for, for any non Toronto stuff, but he's like, well, Eichel's not exactly producing either. It's like, well, Eichel's got, he's like, he's only got two goals. It's like, well, okay. But he's also got like nine assists. I'm pretty sure this year already. And also like his line is producing at an insane rate. They're just not getting scoring. Like they're not getting the goals, but you know, those will come. It's like, I don't really know how you point their fingers. Cause people are like, Taylor Hall's not producing either. It's like, okay, but yeah, like Taylor Hall, Jeff Skinner, and Jack Eichel are the three guys that have actually posted like relatively okay possession, like above 50% in any possession number. I'm not really sure how you're the one, like they're the issue you have here, you know, same with Sam Reinhardt. Yeah. It's classic. Like, Oh, you're getting PDO'd and it's your fault as if Sidney fucking Crosby didn't get PDO'd for an entire season, like two years ago. Like everybody should be aware for the love of God, that this can happen to anyone, but of course. Yeah. 
they're like, not. I don't know. Like, I, it's it's weird that I would be the one saying Buffalo. And I mean, there is something to be said that they have rebuilt for almost a decade now, and they have absolutely nothing to show about it. And their star player is like 24 years old. Like, if you have another full rebuild, can it happen with Jack Eichel? Maybe, but like you're probably gonna, he's probably gonna be 27 by the time you're coming out of it at best. And it may, he's the type of player that really makes it hard to do a full rebuild because as we've seen in past years, he's good enough that he'll help the team go on a 10 game winning streak and that'll make you fifth last instead of dead last, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's, he's a difficult player to rebuild with because you get the seventh overall pick, which has kind of been a chronic problem in Buffalo the past few years. They haven't really gotten like a star in the draft or picking like seventh and they're getting Alex Nylander instead of like a top pick. Well, and that combined with they pick Alex Nylander instead of whoever (laughs) goes behind him, right? Like it's, it's part of that definitely, but it's also like, if you go and look at every single one of their drafts, the guy they pick almost right, like they, in 2016, they picked Nylander. The guys who went behind him, Mikhail Sergachev, who I think they would much rather have right now. Tyson Jost, who they would definitely rather have, even though he's not a, big NHL player, anything, Logan Brown, Michael McLeod, Jake Bean, then Charlie McAvoy, Luke Coonan, Jacob Chitrin. So there's like, there are some legitimate NHL names in that, in that uh, list. And then it's this exact same thing too. You go like, you go to the 2017 entry draft. I'm not sure it's much different, you know, like they pick uh, Casey Middlestad eighth overall, um, you know, Owen Tippett went 10th, Gabe Velarde went 11th, Martin Nikash went 12th, Nick Suzuki went 13th, Eric Branchdom went 15th, Lily Grin went 17th, Josh Norris went 19th, like Robert Thomas 20th. So there's a ton of names in there that like are somewhat, you know, NHL players where the guy that they picked are just not even close to an NHL player, let alone, you know, a star or anything like that, right? So even the, they had first overall and they picked lean. Savechnikov looks way better than Deline right now. Um, you know, maybe you'd rather Deline over Kakiyami, but Brady Kachuk right now looks better than Deline. You know, like I, I think, and and Brady Kachuk looks like you know he might actually have just as high of an upside. You know, after three years of data, so um, it's just one of those things where they haven't been able to hit pick high, and even when they do, they they seemingly pick the wrong guy every single time. Yeah, they seem to just be hitting the landmine no matter what, and it's kind of a little bit of the one, a lot more of the other because like they're clearly terrible at drafting and it's tough to be clearly terrible at something so noisy but i think that's a fair assessment of the sabers so like when you are picking eighth there's actually a lot of there needs to be a lot more skill there as opposed to like everybody would have picked dalene and it's maybe not everybody but most people would have picked dalene from what i heard pre-draft and then that's just kind of luck or whatever but like at eight there's like legitimate decisions that need to be made and if you're bad at making those decisions it's not good to be picking eighth every time or seventh or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like even the Pasco, like they picked Dylan Cousins seventh overall two years ago, and he looks like he should be a good prospect. But even this past year, uh, they picked, uh, I think it was Jack Quinn at like ninth overall. And there were still guys like Marco Rossi were on the board. And there was a bunch of guys that, you know, I follow that were kind of just very confused by it all you know like you pick jack quinn at eighth and marco rossi goes ninth cole perfetti goes 10th Askarov goes 11th lundell and then seth jarvis 12th and 13th and so like there's there's a bunch of names that look pretty good and it's like okay like maybe it'll work out i don't know it's way too early obviously to tell with that but it's one of those things where it's like if they screw up on another pick like that that's like forward picks in five years that they just absolutely butchered and yeah you're not going to get anywhere if you can't hit on your multiple top 10 picks yeah exactly and it's one of those things where people get really pissy when you're like oh 
you're trusting internet scouts over an NHL organization. But when that NHL organization, like I wrote an article, if you just drafted based on NHL E, it would have freaking killed the Sabres. So like, if they're clearly that bad, like there's no reason to give them the benefit of the doubt on these picks that uh, have uncertain futures right now. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing too, is just like, if none of these work out, maybe you have to start looking at your development program because it's not like they develop a ton of homegrown talent either. Right. Like, um, you know, Victor Olofsson, but I think he came from overseas and Sam Reinhardt and Jack Eichel are kind of the only two I can really think that were just homegrown legitimate talents on their team. Yeah, exactly. And like Sam Reinhardt's good. He's actually very good. The draft wasn't particularly strong at the top or whatever, but like, it's not like Sam Reinhardt is you're laughing all the way to the bank with him as a number two pick either. Yeah. I mean, that, that was more just, it was more disappointing that they had the number two overall pick in such a bad draft, but you know, like they were clearly going all in for 2015. But again, the saddest part is I really don't think McDavid changes like the, the drop from McDavid to Eichel's big, but it's not the, as big like it's not I don't think they made they they wouldn't have made the playoffs a single time with McDavid versus Eichel over the past five years or whatever exactly and there's no what if we've seen McDavid easily misses the playoffs if the team around him is bad enough yeah exactly and like he's got like Dreisaitl is better than any player on the Buffalo Sabres that Jack Eichel has had over the past five years you know and McDavid and Dreisaitl still missed the playoffs two years ago and last year it was they looked like they probably were going to make it lost in that play in round. So again, I'm not really going to fault them. Just like I'm not giving Montreal credit. I'm not really going to fault them, but at the same time, it's like they've made it to the second round once and that's all they've done in McDavid's six year career or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like he's, he's not magic. He wouldn't have fixed this Sabres team. No, I mean, there's just way too many bigger issues. So um, yeah, I guess we'll have to leave it there unless you have anything else you want to talk about chase. Uh, No, I don't think so. Uh, then as always, you can find both of our work at lastwordonhockey.com, my work at milehighhockey.com. You can find me on Twitter at NHL Sends and stuff. Chase on Twitter at CMHockey66. Thank you everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week.